Hey, good morning, design lovers. Um, I am here with the editor of Oregon Home Magazine, Emily Grosvenor, um, who is also the author of a forthcoming lifestyle guide, which we're going to talk about in great detail, I hope. Um, we're on our last episode related to color and Joseph Albers' book, um, The Interaction of Color. And uh, it's been a difficult book to talk about via audio because there are so many visuals. So I have felt super blessed to be joined by a bunch of fun guests. And what I have found is there's nobody in our industry or tangentially in our industry who doesn't have a strong opinion on color or some knowledge to share. So, um, Emily, do you want to say a little bit about yourself before we dive into some heady questions? Sure. So I live in McMinnville, which is in the middle of Oregon wine country. It's about an hour southwest of, of Portland. I have been editing Oregon Home for four years now. It's a quarterly home lifestyle publication published in, in Portland. Um, and I also, during that time, have have been building uh, a business as what I like to think of as like a spatial therapist. So the the '90s version would be like a feng shui consultant. Um, but I um, I draw from both kind of ancient wisdom and modern science. Um, when I go into a client's home, I go into their home. I talk to them about what kind of um, where they feel stuck in their life. And then much the way like a, a, a Reiki master would work with the energies of a human body, I work with the energies of a home to help them um, get some kind of movement in those areas. Cool. And so you said the 90s version would be a feng shui. So, so is, is that out? Are we, is that not the way we talk about it anymore? It's an interesting question. And it's something that, that I'm personally still struggling with because on, on the one hand, you want to honor the traditions. Like you don't want to just completely scrap the term so that, that, that we know where those traditions are coming from. But I'm also really, um, you know, as a white woman, I'm, I'm also very aware of, you know, being like a, a white woman who practices feng shui, it's, it's not something that I'm like completely at ease with. Yeah. Um, I just, I also, I use other modalities. Like I, I think a lot about modern um, brand messaging. I think about how to think about your why and your purpose in this world. And so all of those things play into the suggestions that I give to clients, not, not necessarily just, just feng shui. I love feng shui. I'm all in on it. <laughs> uh -huh. I, like to, I like to think about it as like more, more encompassing. The only knowledge I had of feng shui before we started talking and I don't know much more, and I hope to gain some more knowledge by the end of our conversation, but, um, is that it's, it's, um, it's not great to put a bed facing a doorway because that's like being wheeled out in a coffin. I don't know if that's true, but that's that's what a cousin architect of mine told when they had a feng shui person consult for their firm. Is that that's interesting? Yeah, beds beds can be a problem. I mean, the most important thing with the bed is that or, uh, is that you have a headboard, um, and that. The back is is against a wall with a view of the door, but maybe not directly aligned with the door. Gotcha. Interesting. 
it's all about protection and giving giving your sense senses that you um, could potentially see an attacker coming in. <laughs> right. That's why I sleep on the side furthest away from the door. So exactly. I can be protected. Uh, no, I'm teasing. Well, you um, need to think about like our, our primal senses, right? Like, yeah. like when we were living in um, less, less sophisticated dwellings, what, what might have been important to us evolutionarily. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, does remain important to us, I think. So, um, so I, I did also want to mention that you, you've written for a number of uh, fun publications for Good Housekeeping, for Marie Claire. Um, I'm going a little bit out of order, but how did you end up with Oregon Home? So I think in some ways, when I got that job offer, it felt really inevitable. I was working as a travel writer. I've always been someone who felt spaces at a really deep level, and I was always looking I'm always thinking about experiences, how people walk through a building, how they walk through a room, how they walk uh, through and experience a, a place um, as a traveler. I think it comes from being like, a. have been told I'm energetically very open, uh, for better or for worse. Like I, I also tend to feel people's stress, right? So I have to be really careful about, you know, being in large crowds. I'm, I'm very empathetic. Um, I've heard there's ways to turn that off, like as an empath, they, they, there's like some kind of switch or some, some technique you can learn, but, um, I haven't really tried that yet. Right now I'm just like, you know, taking it all in. I'm a really sensual person paying, paying attention to all of my senses. So when I got that job, um, my heart as a journalist is in profile work and long-term, a long form narrative nonfiction. I really like spending time with people who are obsessives, who are going through something, who have made big changes in their lives, who want to make big changes. I like people who are not weird for weirdness sake, but who are willing to kind of let me into their world. It's always been important to me when I'm uh, doing a story to go see people interact in their own space so that I can give the reader a sense of, of place within that story. The writers that I've always loved are people like Susan Orlean, um, who spent time at the Willamette Week and, and has been with the New Yorker for a really long time. All of her stories are really imbued with a sense of place or the place uh, that cannot be separated from, from the character. So interesting. It just makes perfect sense that I would end up um, editing a magazine. I also, um, I think that there's some of us who are made to be primarily creators and some of us who have more of like a curatorial spirit. And I, I think that part of my storytelling is seeing the elements and finding the mix for, for how they all fit together. Hey, Peter Spalding here, Chief Creative Officer at Daniel House Club. At Daniel House, we simplify the business of design by allowing interior designers to purchase from over 80 trade vendors in a single transaction at 30, 40, or 50% off when they join as free Pro or Pro Plus members. There are never any minimum orders. Designers, use your Daniel House Club dashboard to share pieces with your clients and set their prices to reflect whatever amount of your discount you want to share with them. When they make a purchase, Daniel House will send you the difference. 
Of course, you can always purchase on your client's behalf using your full discount. Freight is just 10% of your order, and white glove delivery quotes are available nationwide. With Daniel House, you always know what you're going to pay before you specify. Share quotes with your clients, confident there are no surprise fees lying ahead. If you have any questions, your Daniel House Club concierge will pick up the phone or answer the email you send and talk with you, search for products you may not find on the site, and help you every step of the way, including organizing returns, replacements, or repairs of items that arrive damaged. Daniel House Club's exceptional customer service keeps designers coming back again and again. Take it from Pro Plus member Trish Bonet, who says, Daniel House Club has been a game changer for me. It's so quick and easy with a lot of brands that we've wanted to use but didn't have accounts with. Their customer service is top-notch whenever I have questions. It also keeps my clients happy because I can manage their expectations on shipping with the Daniel House Club 10% flat rate. Sign up at danielhouse.club today. We can't wait to create beautiful rooms together. So one of the most fun things in, in about my work and about being an editor as opposed to the person um, who's doing all of the home projects is uh, getting able to lift people up, being able to identify people who, who everyone should be paying attention to or uh, catching ideas out of the culture and finding the people who are showing what can be done with those ideas. I just find that really dynamic and, and fun, just endless fun. That's interesting that you, uh, you identify creators and what did you say it was? Curators. Because as a designer, um, I, it's a funny pl- and kind of as a writer, I mean, you are creating stuff right. yourself. Um, but a, as you say, a huge part of your job is putting the creations of a bunch of other people together. And I always kind of feel that dissonance when I'm creating a space. Right. Like I'm working with a bunch of crafts people who are really more qualified than me in their particular space. But um, but then in br- my job is to bring it all together um, in an effective way way but sometimes i feel really aware of my shortcomings in doing that is that i think that's completely healthy i i love that feeling and i i kind of lean into it if you ever feel like you know completely what you're doing you're probably done (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a a wise piece of advice um okay well i do want to get to uh one of my book-based questions. So, um, so we can judge you and your viability for being invited on this, um, program. No, I'm teasing. Um, but so Joseph Albers, um, in writing about, uh, studying the work of old masters, which he encourages all of his students to do, um, says basically that, the way that we honor them is to compete with their attitude, not to recreate what they created. And an exercise that he suggests all of his students do to this end is to take the works of their favorite masters or not their favorite masters. He really likes people to choose things that they don't like um, and finds that by the end of it, they love those things the most. Um, But to, 
to take that and basically I sort of think of it as like making a heat map, but but taking um, paper, uh, construction paper and pasting that onto a big sheet of paper so that you're just reconstructing where all of the colors are presenting themselves in a painting. And in this way, you sort of begin to understand how the artist that you love or don't love thought about color and found it important to present color. Um, and this doesn't recreate the work. It just kind of starts to get at the essence or, as he said, aroma of the work. Um, and this, I kind of wanted to ask you this question about, you write a lot about scent, which is something I'm curious about how you started doing anyway. But you wrote that you uh, sort of dug deeply into what you called smelly writing and studied people writing about scent and employing that in a broader context. I'm wondering how you come away from that study and are ready to create something new rather than sort of writing what's already been written. So first of all, that the exercise with, with Josef Albers sounds, um, Sounds expensive. Like, would you be, would you have all of the right? Well, that's what I would worry about. I'm like, no, he says like, you be the right like, paper. You can even like tear apart old magazines and collage them. It doesn't have to be construction paper. So it's really a cheap project. You get a piece of cardboard, you get some paper scrap that is representative of the color and you go to town. Okay. So the thing about scent, there, there's some things that really fascinate me about scent. One is that some say it is the only sense that you have that can actually get better as you age. But you have to train it. You have to learn to recognize your sense of smell. You have to learn to um, identify and put words to sense. Um, we don't have the vocabulary for scent that we have for the visual world. We are way more visually oriented. And um, over time, our evolutionarily, our noses have actually gotten smaller. Like if you look at Neanderthals and Australopithecines and Homo erectus, they had these big noses because the nose played a more prominent role in, in the lives of those species. Whereas over time, our noses have gotten smaller and smaller. And it has related to like a um, less olfactory gusto on the part of, of the human being. So we're already operating um, at a level that is far less than, say, a dog who can smell um, a thousand times better than us and a bear who can smell a thousand times better than the dog can, right? So we don't have a, the very first step with, with set is that you have to start paying attention to, to it. It's intimately connected to the breath. So that means going through your life in a completely different way. You're like actually taking in the breath and noticing what sensor are coming up. So I, 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 you had mentioned that, that we might talk about this. So I tried to make like a little, um, like set of steps that would allow you to incorporate more scent in your writing. It's a pretty standard thing that writers say, oh, make sure you incorporate all the five senses. But most people just leave it at that. 
And what emerges generally is you get a lot of um, new writers just throwing in scent, right? They're just like, the room smelled of cinnamon and vanilla, period, right? So it doesn't, it, it seems very just kind of plunked in there and there's not very much sophistication to it. So what I was hoping- it's like they went back and they were like, oh, I didn't mention scent at all. Right. Or someone was editing it and, and you know, doing that first read and was like, oh, you might want to bring in some more senses here just to give someone a more immersive feel in the text, which is really important. Um, but once I really started paying attention and just to, to every time I encountered scent on the page, what I noticed is the more sophisticated writer, the more it becomes um, more like scent actually is, where just... Just, just a waft of it, just like a little spray of it in a sentence. Um, I wish I had an example to, to show you. I could have, could have pulled something out. Um, but what I've noticed is that the first thing is to notice scent, to pay attention to noticing scent, um, just as you're going about your daily life and really get a sense for how rich that uh, aromatic environment really is. The second thing is, is to value it. Right within within writing to say this is going to be important, so I need to think about how incorporating it, not just you know think of it as like an add-on, but really valuing it in the um, in a piece of writing. And then the the last step is really to have your own way of integrating it within a story. Um, you know, like in a classic detective novel, um, scent is often brought in as you know, he smelled her perfume after she had left the room. Yeah. It's usually like the main character who is doing this, the, the, the scenting, the smelling. Um, so, you know, I, at that point, once you've noticed it and you value it, you can start thinking about to integrate it, right? Is it the character who is, who is sm- doing the smelling? Is it uh, an omniscient narrator who is, who is noticing the scent? Is it, is it within the description of a scene? Is it in a piece of dialogue? Just what are the many different ways that you can incorporate uh, scent into, into piece writing? We paused for a second because I'm in the middle of a construction site and couldn't focus on what Emily was telling me. But then you asked me if I wear scent. Okay. And I said, um, I've spent my whole life kind of averse to scents because my mom would walk into a house with a Glade plug in and say, I'm sick. And, and so my concept was all scents are bad. Um, but then as an adult, I did start wearing cologne. What are you wearing? Oh, that's, I don't, I have no idea. Whatever was gifted to me most recently. Um, but it's never like, uh, you know, like some brand that you know it, I like the, kind of weird ones. Um, and I did, I actually got this scent that I loved. I, I got it when I was like 19 or 20 and we were on a trip to Egypt and we visit, visited this place where apparently this could have been a lie. I don't know. Um, they produced a lot of the bases for a lot of the scents that we know in the department stores everywhere. Um, and I think mine was the base for, you know, I don't know, but I loved it because it was so light and almost undetectable. And then I, you know, ran out a year later and 
I have no idea what it was called or how to find it again. So I, I think that Americans in general don't have a very um, smelly culture. And a lot of us are very scent averse. And I think it's much in the, in the way that um, the food world has had to reteach us how to love an asparagus after growing up with like boiled escapes, asparagus as children. Um, you know, the same way we have, we've looked at like the vegetables of our youth and now wow. the vegetables today. Um, you could say the same thing about, about scent. If we grew up in, um, in a Glade plug-in Yankee Candle culture, um, then we might be telling ourselves a story that we don't like scent. Um, but we're also living in like the golden age of, of, of scent now because we just have access to so many different oils and, and resins. You see it in the world of candles, how, how much more sophisticated and interesting and yummy candles have gotten and how so many people are really casting off all of those um, synthetic chemical scents and focusing more on the natural essences. And it's also shifted it into perfumery. Perfumery is really interesting right now. Um, there's so many independent lines. One, I, one that I love is actually Gwyneth Paltrow's perfume, <laughs> Douglas Little, is amazing. And he makes all of her perfumes. Um, I wear one called Incense, which basically smells like you've been anointed by, by a priest. <laughs> that does sound you know, frankincense and sandalwood and these 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 uh, resins that have this really amazing history and that actually have um don't make a lot of claims about essential oils i know there's a lot of claims out there but you know frankincense is one of the only ones that have been scientifically proven to alleviate depression Um, so there's there's just so much out there um and the natural perfumes they don't really like hit you in the face the the way um a synthetic perfume would um they they are built really with those classic top notes which evaporate really quickly middle notes which take a little longer and then base notes which stick around a little longer so as a a storyteller and a writer what i love most about them is that you put them on and they really will evolve like a story the very first thing you smell is that top note you know, a little bit later, you won't be able to smell it at all because it's gone, right? And then uh, the room is actually evolving and changing in connection with your with your own scent. Interesting. Well, so what I um, am interested most in, I think, is that you said we don't have enough vocabulary to talk about scent. And actually, Albers wrote, too, that there's only 30 names for color, and there are thousands of different colors. So it does kind of leave us somewhat unequipped to talk about that as well. And um, you told me that when you first started creating your own home, you were sort of really into that 50s turquoise We don't have a further word to describe really what that is, color, but then your sense sort of evolved. So is turquoise the right thing to be calling it? And where, where uh, I, mean, I, I think the very first thing I did was I had, um, you know, I like growing up, my mother always told me that, that red was not my color. So I think in my early 20s, I was like, red, it's time for red. So I incorporated a lot of red, which um, 
I had like one of those red formica kitchen tables. Uh Yeah. And I think that's where, that's where that aesthetic came from. Like just a little bit retro, a little bit nostalgic. Um, It it made me feel connected to my grandparents. I dragged that thing across the country. I mean, it's still, we still have it. It's like in the garage and we ate on it for, for, for many, many years. And then when I got my own home, um, then it was all about, about the turquoise. My, my grandparents' home was, was turquoise and red. Um, they had like a red velvet couch, Victorian, in a turquoise room. So growing up to me, that's what it felt like. It was in the parlor, right? Uh, At par- uh, parlors. They lived in this old Victorian home in uh, Western Pennsylvania in a town called Brookville. So to me, that was like the, the height of class. <laughs> to have this like turquoise and also it was just a very um very com- comforting color for me and then we we bought a business here here in town um it's it's a healthcare practice it's a, a dental dental practice and when we bought it it needed a complete overhaul it was it was it was kind of a mess it was built in the early 90s and it had turquoise and maroon speckle paint oh on peach walls Mm. with a wine country trim like with that like wallpaper trim yeah i know what you're talking about yeah and the wallpaper trim was actually installed upside down if i remember correctly that's Um, really beautiful i mean it was just so dated now i look back at it and my heart just kind of like opens for that because it was totally of an era yeah and it's easy to hate on things that were like, you know, 30 years ago. And then, you know, someone 11 and 10 years, right? And um, we'll hate whatever we're doing. <laughs> exactly. And that's okay. But, you know, I went in there and I was like, okay, what are we going to paint? I know, turquoise. And then I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Going <laughs> here, I can't, you know, I painted my son's room turquoise. I'm like, what is going on? I don't know anything about color. So we actually hired a... Feng Shui designer Cheryl Janis, who was working a lot in um, in healthcare spaces at the time, and she she was amazing. She came in, and she had a very intuitive feeling about um, about spaces. It was almost like she could she could feel what people felt as they walked through through the room. And not only did, was I like amazed by her, but I also kind of identified with her. She just, she just had more training than I did. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like I feel like I could fill a space. I could kind of tell you what's wrong with it, but I just didn't know where to go. I didn't have any, any, any knowledge base. I didn't have any training. Um, so she counseled us, uh, to, to do like something that felt a little bit more like skin on the walls. So we went with like a, a cashew, um, and then we ended up paying the ceiling, the entire ceiling of the practice, like a dark, stormy, purple navy. Interesting. Feels really counterintuitive to, to put a dark on the ceiling like that. But the effect has been that people are calm when yeah. they come in there. And we, our patients who are amazing, they, they'll come in, get something done. And before COVID, they used to come out, sit back down in our waiting room and finish their magazine article. <laughs> right That's which crazy. to That's me crazy. as a magazine writer i'm like i did it it's amazing 
<laughs> that's right? some sort of vertical integration right there, I think. That's exactly, impressive. exactly. And, the, and they don't always know why they feel good there, but they don't need to. You know, it's the important right. thing that they do. Yeah, I think that about so. I mean, I think there are so many people who think they don't care about design, but they will linger in a place that's comfortable and they might not be able to identify why it is, but they can sense it. Um, So so now I'm actually like, I went through a phase where I was like, you know what, I'm just going to find a paint company that has a good color palette and do it. And so I did that for a while just so that I could learn more about how palettes worked. And now, only now am I starting, like I've started taking color consultations as part of my practice. Um, I did one in a church. Um, I did one for someone picking a a front door color. And I I still, I don't, I still feel like I'm at the beginning of of my color journey, journey. like even, even just uh, understanding what I know now, Um, but I'm starting to get more confident and that feels good. Yeah. 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 It does. It feels great when you're no longer always feel like you're experimenting, but you feel like you have some, some reason for what you're doing. Maybe it's not a good reason. I don't know. Um, (laughs) So so on that, you, you asked me a couple of weeks ago, if I, um, if there were any colors that I felt like I worked well in projects specifically in the Northwest. And my answer was Benmore HC 133, which is either Terrytown or Yorktown green and 134, which is one or the other of those as well. Um, and then, I, then I learned that you, you were, um, not a feng shui master, but you know, (laughs) that you had some deep knowledge and I went away and I thought, I wonder what my answer meant to her. Um, and so I, of course, consulted Google and got some probably not great advice, but, um, but I learned that that blue green combination is supposed to, um, sort of evoke water and wood which are very prevalent in our region. And so I was wondering, does that mean this is a great color for this region or, or is there a little bit more to that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's multi-layered with that, that particular green color. Green, I mean, any artist will tell you that greens are incredibly difficult to, to, to work with Yeah, in a painting. Um, so when you find one that works really well in many different spaces, I think you you got to hold on to it tight. Um, I have definitely. I, last summer I painted my uh, bookshelf that uh, Sherwin Williams Peter Green, um, and it wasn't my own idea. It was you know a couple of years ago M Henderson did a Portland project where she had a kitchen that was this color. Um, and, and I, I loved that kitchen and I kind of wanted to replicate it. And now, you know, you go in the, the street of dreams tour and it's like, there's green bookshelves everywhere. Yes, there are. There are. It's very prevalent right now. Right. Right. But that, that particular green that you're working with is interesting to me. So, so if someone's attracted to that color, uh, on the one hand, if that green is not going to compete with that outdoors. Yeah. Right. It, there's enough black in it um, that it, it does have that kind of like framing feel if you put it up against the outdoors. 
Um, I know some interior designers who won't put green at all in their interiors if there are big views of, of green on the outside because they really don't want it to compete with that, that, that view to the outside. Um, from an elemental perspective, you know, someone who's drawn to that color, um, water is in the five element theory, water feeds wood. So um, water is very supportive of wood. Someone who is identifies more as a water person is usually pretty clever and quick changing, um, pretty smart. Um, someone who identifies as a wood person. I actually live in a wood house. I, I'm wood and my husband is wood, right? So there's a lot of wood in our house, just in terms of personality. Wood people um, tend to be really expansive and interested in growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can think about but it. Not that smart. So what you're um, saying? No, I think sorry. all of them have have a sense of, of smart, but it's a matter of like with water people, I always think of them as being like responsive and quick changing. Whereas yeah. wood people are a little bit more like stuck in the earth, right? Yeah. And reaching for the for for the sky. Um so when you are a a person in a body with a personality and a space, um, if you can identify which of those five elements, water, wood, fire, earth, or metal, which of those five elements connect most with your, um, with your personality, then you have a pretty good sense of what colors um, will feel most harmonious to you. Also, if there are parts of your personality that you want to tamp down a little bit, for us, um, my husband is, he's like a wood person through and through. He, um, he likes to curve wood. He grows, you know, we have 85 bonsai in our backyard. You know, everything he wants to buy is like a picture of a tree. And he's been doing this for hours, <laughs> right? I'm like, okay, we have enough tree pictures. You know, he's got a, a, a tattoo of a, a tree on his back in the middle of his back. So, um, but being a wood person, you can also, it's also associated with being really ambitious and working really hard and you can start to feel really burnt out. So, you know, you can bring in more watercolors, which are black and like a mirror will help those kind of people feel less burnt out or just a kind of softening that wood, um, by using more, more metal, um, metal is said to, to chop chop wood on the end as a mental relationship. So that means bringing in more metals, but it could also be using colors like whites and and grays to try to um, make that wood element less prominent. So is part of your consultation with a person to help them identify what kind of person they are? Or Yes, if if that's something that they want. uh, Generally, you can almost get a sense just by interacting with them and seeing what they're struggling with, what, what kind of element they, they may, they may be. And, you know, you can scan elements as well. Each of us have, have some of that in all of us, all of those elements. Um, but generally when I go into a space, I, it would be both exhausting and not helpful to, to address every part of the home in one visit. It, it, you know, it's like, deciding to do a full house remodel. Like it's just going to create a lot of um, spiritual um, chaos 
um, do like a whole home at once. So generally I ask not just spiritual, just (laughs) (laughs) physical and spiritual and intellectual, all, all the chaos. Um, so I usually ask them to identify um, two or maybe three areas of, of their life that, that, that they feel stuck in. And then we focus on on those areas. Interesting. OK, um, so you uh, you and I are both transplants to this region. Yeah. And I'm curious about how your I mean, you're a wood person no matter where you are. <laughs> but how is your color experience different here from, say, where you grew up in Pennsylvania? So I definitely pay attention to it more. I think it has to do with the quality of the light that's going on in the Pacific Northwest. I think it's a favorite place for photographers because the light here can be so diffuse and so ever changing. And it feels, you know, people like Oregon because you have the seasons, right? Um, But within the seasons, there are also those micro seasons, right? Um, So you always know that there's going to come a day in September when the sun is setting at a certain angle and the entire sky is flooded with pinks and purples. Yeah. And I can look back to like blog posts when I wrote, when I was first experiencing that, that where I, I was having like some kind of spiritual aesthetic um, revolutionary experience within my, myself thinking that that was just like a one-off thing. Right. Thinking, Oh my gosh, what a magical moment. Now it's coming around again really soon. Right. Now I'm like, Oh, it's rainbow season. Right. Because yeah. actually going to feel like you're in Ireland and you, you, you know, you might see a Dumble rainbow and you start to see that it's, it, it just becomes part of life. But I, I, I try to go back and think about those first moments because I mean, I feel like that was me and my best self when, when I was experiencing that for, for the first time and not seeing it as, as mundane and not writing it off as some kind of like, this is just an atmospheric moment that happens because the sun is at a certain angle. <laughs> I actually, I remember, um, I grew up in a white house. I love white houses. Um, but my mom moved here and she bought a early 20th century house that was sprayed concrete and it had never been painted. And I actually thought it was very, very beautiful, but yeah. it was a little bit dilapidated. It had some mildewy, aspect it could never get totally clean and this bothered her so finally we did paint it white and a swiss coffee white is the name of the color i think it's a sherwin williams color and i remember driving up to the house on one of those days and it looked like superimposed over this fake world behind it and it was beautiful. I mean, it was extraordinary. Not the house. I mean, the, it looked good white, but it made the sky so incredibly pronounced, mm-hmm. um, which was an experience I'd never had anywhere else. I think you're totally right. The light here is just continues to give us a new kind of experience. And I, I live in the valley. That's that, We can't even really talk about, you know, what the Oregon colors are because you know, nature has the the best color palettes. 
And a valley color palette is is ever changing, right? Like there's always a day in um in July when we're driving down to the Oregon Country Fair where the blue is the bluest it's gonna get. And you know, the the hay has all been um harvested and they they're building it in those laying it in those blocks so that it looks like like a modern sculpture. And they're they've dotted the entire valley as you're driving through it. And it's like gold and shiny and it's it's a moment, but it's also like a Willamette Valley moment. Whereas, like you go over in, into Bend, and and a Central Oregon palette is is going to be, uh, or one inspired by a Central Oregon is going to look completely different. Where Southern Oregon palette is going to be a lot more green, but a different kind of green than you get in like the Deschutes Natural Forest. So I just, you know, someone who 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 used to be a travel writer and who. Um, just loves connecting to place. I just find that that the changing colors of the landscape really compelling here. Yeah. Um, I took a class here that was all about the horizon. It was a painting mm-hmm. class, I think. I don't remember where I learned this. Um, but but in painting, the horizon is almost always painted blue um, or very frequently is painted blue because to many that conveys a sense of distance. Um, And Albers is kind of critical of this theory because he says, you know, warm, cool, um, conveying close versus versus distant spaces uh, is interesting, but color is so open to personal interpretation that not everybody maybe sees it that way. Um, But he says still, it is accepted in Western culture that Blue is usually conveying something cool and the, the adjacent colors of red, orange, and yellow usually are creating something warm. Um, I'm curious if, if you feel that way. Um, but also one of the other books that we've covered in this podcast is, um, Elsie DeWolf's The House in Good Taste. And she has this sort of humorous part where she basically says, you know, if you're somebody with a fiery temper, don't paint your living room red because you're going to look like a cartoon villain. But if you're a hostess or host who's a little bit meek and mild, maybe your dining room being red is going to give you this reassurance. What do you think about that? And I think that's hilarious. Yeah, I think it's very funny, too. On the one hand, there are many reasons not to paint it red. The primary one is that red awakens the appetite scientifically. Yeah, you're going to gain weight in a red dining room. Right. So you do not want red in your dining room unless um, maybe you're one of those people who who doesn't have a problem with with (laughs) over-consuming. It's not American culture, so um, maybe that was of a different era. I always think of like old Victorian homes with like red brocade wallpaper. I do too. Yeah. It's not, it's not a, the red I think of in a dining room is not quite wine red, but it's, but it's not a red that I like at all. Right. Same. Um, And so I would never advise anyone to paint their dining room that color, but no, but as far as like a fiery person and painting it, it, trying not to paint it red. I think that's a little bit too focused on what other people are going to think of your home. Yeah, I agree. And my my thing is about like vibing on your own space. 
people love to come to your house because they like being in your vibe. Right. Um, I, I 100%. I think that's the best advice you can give somebody is you're yeah. inviting them into your home and it should exactly. feel like who you are. Yeah. I mean, you can be a, a good hostess or host and, and think about another person and their needs in your space, but it's all about their experience of you. And if they're coming to visit you, then they want to experience that. So, you know, in, in other eras, people gave far too much attention to, um, to what their story in their space was telling other people. Yeah. Think that it's these days uh, we're more or should be more about having that conversation with ourselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that I think has prohibited, uh, prohibited us from being that way is our constant idea that we may move tomorrow. And so our house <laughs> be ready to sell, but I do Absolutely. feel like people have been a little bit less focused on that. Maybe during the pandemic, maybe, I don't know, there seems to be a little bit of a shift toward. So I've done some research on this because I've included it in book proposals before, but uh, there's a lot of good information on how much people were moving. Like in general, uh, Americans have have been a a transitional culture where where there's been a lot of movement happening, especially inbound to Oregon has been really big in the past 10 years or so. Yeah. Uh, there was a while when Oregon was, was the number one state for inbound moves. Yeah. I remember that. I think it was, right. one of, I was one of those people. We were like, Oh, I mean, that's part of, part of the trend. Yeah. Uh, but I think that now people are looking for more of a sense of rootedness and, and, and connectedness. Um, and hopefully that translates to not as much moving. I mean, I just think for the earth and for, uh, for our communities, um, there's nothing sadder than, than when really wonderful people leave your community. Um, so I'd like to think that we're maybe headed in the other direction, but I guess we'll see. Yeah. I, I, I hope that you're right. Cause I yeah. do, I, especially on the community front, I think it's, super important for people to stay and become a part of their place. Um, okay. I do want to talk for a couple minutes about the book you have coming up. Um, I don't feel that I can describe any of it. So I hope that you'll tell us a little bit about what it sure. is. Sure. It's i uh, I'm actually just, uh, I just signed with the, the publisher. It's, it's through Chronicle Books, which is a fantastic independent publisher um, with a really strong visual team out of, of San Francisco, San Francisco. And it is an imprint that is uh, called Prism, which is focusing on the mind, body, health and home space. Um, and the book is called The Oracle House. So the premise of my book is that the, the home is really a place of really mysterious and magical messaging that you can return to much, much the way ancient travelers went to visit the Oracle of Delphi, got a message and then interpreted it and then went on with their lives. I see the home as this constantly changing Oracle, which helps send you messages about, about your life. So it's basically ancient wisdom and and modern science about uh, shaping your behavior at home. Interesting. And I, I thought, and maybe I'm incorrect that there, there's a heavy um, focus on objects. 
Right. So objects are are a big part of it. Um, I think that it also has to do with getting people to identify what attracted them to a space in the first place. Um, what I've noticed in my work is that people tend to choose spaces that reflect what's going on with them at an emotional level, not necessarily who they aspire to be. Mm. Give you a little example of this. Um, our, our neighbors um, moved into the home next door to us. At the time, they were coming from, um, from the, the, the Oregon coast where they had experienced a really terrible um, series of months uh, pulling away from their church community. Mm. And they were in a process of grieving. And okay. so they actually ended up picking a, what I like to call a grief house. So in, in feng shui, the feng shui masters always talk a lot about water and the flow of water through the home. So if, if you're picking a grieving house, um, the water's getting stuck somewhere. So in their case, something had never been attached right within the home. Um, and it was the, um, the vent from their washing machine. So their vent had been pumping water into the roof and the attic space. Oh no. 15 years in that house. Not good. No. Um, and very quickly, you know, since they're people who take really good care of their home, they discovered it. They replaced that entire section of, of the, um, of the roof. But what I like to think, uh, look back and think about is that that's the home they chose. They waited three months for that house. They had a couple of house sales fall through when, when they were out on the coast. Uh, and they were they were drawn to that story because it reflected what was going on with them, right? Mm-hmm. I always like to look at a space and think, what was going on with the, this person when they chose this home, and how can we adjust that space to reflect the person that they're becoming rather than the stuck position that they're in? Interesting. I'm now I'm wondering how how I was when I picked my home and where That's I. That's an interesting one, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, I think that honestly, I think your home has has more to do with you are likely pretty skilled at seeing what something can become. Uh, Do you have a soft spot for um, sorry cases? I absolutely do. Yes. Yep. That's all that means. Okay. All right. Well, you've dissected me already. Okay, well, I can't. And do you know yet when the book will be? Um, so spring 2023. Okay, you've got a lot of work to do. I really do. I have three we've, months to write it. We so better good luck to me. this call soon. Um, <laughs> we have to do it. We have to do the weather. No, no, we will. We will. Okay. Um, okay. So, yes, this is going to be the final um, part here. Uh, when I asked Emily if she would come on the podcast, she said, have you listened to Domino? Their host always asks about these trends and asks the guests whether they're into them or over them. And you sent me a link to the one where they interviewed Jonathan Adler, who's just like such an enthusiastic person about everything. And he was literally like into it, into it, into it, Um, which is really just encouraging from a leader of our community, I think. Um, The only thing he wasn't like wild about was accent walls, which I personally loathe. 
um, though I think that they're, they occasionally are very successful. So I want to get your thoughts on that. And then I want to ask you the five trends that are Pacific Northwest specific that I've listed. And then you're going to ask me some, right? I am. Okay. It All was right. hard. It was hard yeah. to come up with some things. It is actually. a little bit difficult. So first, do you like accent walls? What's your stance there? I think they can, they can feel really dated. Um, yeah. I like an accent wallpaper wall. Yeah, that's very fun. I So what I like is, so, like, I think about Barcelona Pavilion by Mies van der Rohe. A great mid-century space that is made up of like partitions that move you around. If a partition is made out of marble or something that's distinguished from the rest of the space, then I think that's very successful. Suggesting that you paint one wall. I always think of a room as, you know, an envelope. And so to me, it becomes really, it, it destroys the 3d of a room when you decide, oh, I'm just going to do an accent wall. You know, technically, I think that my bookshelf could be an accent wall because this bookshelf takes up the entire space. That's accent architecture. Okay, accent. All right. Um, but I did paint it one color, like now that I'm looking at it. But I, could, I don't know. I think, I think it. And that maybe that's like the update on the accent wall in general. I guess I'm not a fan. Yeah. Okay. All right. Your bookcase looks great to me. What I can see. Um, okay. So what are the five things you want to ask me? Or do you want me Wait, to go I want you, I want you to go first. Um, all right. So one was live edge tables. Over it. So, and I'll tell you why. Um, I'm getting fancier as I get older. Yeah. It's very difficult to put a placemat on a live edge table because the, the edge, they look really dumb. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not that I need to be fancy all the time. It's just I want to have like opportunities for that moment. Um, and live edge makes that a little bit impossible. That having been said, there's other I mean, a live edge shelf could look really cool sometimes. Yeah. But I don't need to see it all the time because I'm getting a little tired of it. Yeah. Great answer. Thank you for the why. I appreciate that. Um, okay. Number two is dedication to casualty. Over it. Yeah. Ditto. I think we might be on the same page here about. Most yeah. Of. I think, um, I think when I first came out here, I was more like, how do I fit into this place? What's my Oregon mojo going to be? Um, but now I've just noticed that I feel better about myself when I dress up a little, um, and I have more fun when I take it a little bit more seriously. Um, I just, I just know a little bit more about what it means to, to entertain and to give people an experience. Um, and it's not so much about my comfort. It's about like giving people an experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and making others comfortable too, which, I mean, I think people assume if you make it really, really casual, everybody will be comfortable, but I often think that means that there's been some oversight and maybe you're missing something. Right. Or like what's, what's on brand for you? Like my, um, I'll call out my, uh, Oregon home publisher her on, on Instagram. She's Courtney fancy pants. 
<laughs> keep it Fun. fancy. So if people know that about you, then then they'll expect it, and it, it, you'll feel more more comfortable doing doing you. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's very wise. Make yourself known. Okay, number three is a desire or perhaps a need to make it yourself. So that's my husband through and through. Okay. Um, and it is it is so frustrating because it means that he so love that right? Oh yeah. Like yeah, he's yeah. like a salvage person, and I I respect salvage. Um, I respect um people who can look at objects that way. Um, but when it comes to the home, I think I'm more of a classicist. Like I don't really want a lamp that's lampshade that's coming out of like something else that's not a lamp. Yes. Like okay. That's that's actually that's getting at my number five question, which is repurposing stuff. Um, the creativity involved in it, uh, so I'm into it, but it depends on what those things are. Like all of those things can work, right? It's just. Throwing random things together just because it looks weird and you've never seen it before isn't necessarily going to to make it lovely. Sometimes there's a reason you've never seen it before. Exactly. Somebody trialed and errored that and decided it was an error. Um, But so what I like in repurposing is finding a great old piece of furniture and making it work for your contemporary setting. I think that's and using it for its original use or or maybe just a slightly different one, but like repurposing a trombone as a lamp, that's <laughs> tends to just be odd. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it could, there's probably people out there that it w- could work for, but I guess I would say that's not where my value lies. Like my value lies on usually on personal, on like the story of the object, your aesthetic value. Interesting. Okay. And my last one was, a green aesthetic. And that means the idea that if it looks green, it must be. I feel like that's a complicated one. I'm like, I feel like there, there's like an aesthetic that's now connected with green interiors. Right. Which I'm into. Um, but naturally, how could you be into like a fake greenness? Well, I think that that aesthetic which is not a bad aesthetic. I think that sometimes the person who's beholding it believes that if it doesn't look like this, it isn't green. And that's where the, where I have difficulty because one of the greenest things you could do is buy an old house where it's all been designed to have great natural ventilation and you're not buying a bunch of new construction materials to make it possible. Um, so I, I have a hard time saying this over here that looks really green is what everybody should aspire to. And this, are you talking about like ultra modern, like the way they design like passive? Right. Yes. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's a very specific look that doesn't necessarily have to be, it's not a bad look. It's a good look. It just doesn't have to look that way to be Maybe that's a challenge to people like me to think about what it would be look like to um, create content that talked about greenness in in the older home. 
Yeah, that's actually the whole reason I brought you on was to get you challenged. No, I'm teasing. That, that no, awesome. I'll take it. Yeah, okay, great. Um, awesome. All right, that, those were my five. So let's okay. hear five. You ready for this? Yes. All right, great couches. Oh, over it. That said, I have one, but it's a very soft Same. kind of mousy gray. Yeah. So the my friend, the Portland Pillow Prince, I don't know if you've connected with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, I've met him, yeah. Tyler. So uh, he said everyone who comes in there to buy um, a throw pillow from him has a gray couch. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And you have to do something to make it happier. Right. I'm, I'm over it though. Like I, I, I think my next one's going to be gold. That's what I'm gold. Oh yeah. I'm thinking, thinking kind of like ochre gold situation. Love that. Um, All right. So this one is specifically Willamette Valley. Okay. Vertical welcome signs. Interesting. Does that mean that the word welcome is spelled out vertically? Hmm. I've given this no thought. I don't know if I hate that, but I feel like you've experienced it more than I have. So uh, I'm going to send you some pictures. Okay. I can't wait to see them. I I don't know if I can make a a well-informed opinion there. We have neighborhoods here in the Valley where every house has one. Oh, on the house? I yeah, a welcome sign on a house I would never like. I don't, I don't like <laughs> on a residence. <laughs> okay, um, celebrity portraiture in the home. Hate, have never been into. I think that is one of the least personal things you could express. Why do you have to Audrey Hepburn? I don't know. You don't know her. <laughs> I feel like there's so many, like, sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't, but there's, I see them in in Portland all the time, right? Like type celebrity photography, or we did a, we did a home once that had like, like an oil painting of Dave Grohl, (laughs) right? And I was like, these are some Gen Xers who have gotten some money. Yeah. (laughs) An oil painting might be more interesting to me. I don't know that I'd have to see. Right. Okay. How about 70s vibes? I'm into it. I've, I, I'm not into, I, so I think like in the early two thousands, I remember kind of dressing like our parents might have in high school, like ringer tees and stuff. Yeah. That kind of seventies I'm not really into, but there's a really like luxurious glamorous version of the 70s that is popular right now mm-hmm. that i think taking hints from and it's like rooted in art deco which is one of my favorite eras of design so that i'm into the sort of more voluptuous 70s all right so this is a central organ thing big wood furniture hey never into it um, i'm i'm waiting for it's actually happening. I don't have to wait for it for, for, for central Oregon to turn the corner on, on the big wood furniture, the, the lodge style. Yeah. Well, one of the problems is um, it looks okay in a lodge, a huge lodge, but most people's houses are not big enough to accommodate that kind of furniture. And so it looks very heavy and oppressive. Yeah. I think it, for me, it comes back to like when I go on vacation and since I'm a wood person, I cannot, I don't, I don't want to be surrounded by wood like that. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't either. I particularly on a piece of upholstery, like on something you're sitting on, having wood arms is just not as good as having something that you can like lay your face on if you want to. Right. Okay. Was that it? That was That's fun. it. All right. Well, thank you, Emily, for your time. Uh, it has been so fun getting to know you more. And I hope that you'll come chat with us again soon. Thank you so much. It's been it's been a real pleasure. And I'm really enjoying like just watching what you're doing out in the world. And uh, having been inside your home, I just uh, I'm fascinated and I'm, I'm excited to see how how you evolve, too. Cool. Well, um, I'm going to let you get writing right now. So <laughs> <laughs> open up that word, Jack. Yep. See ya. Bye.